Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 31. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and this episode, my guest is Brian D. McLaren, author, speaker, public theologian, and activist. He's someone I've wanted to have on the podcast really since it began. He is responsible for a lot of the theology out there uh, that's commonly referred to as progressive Christianity. He's one of the more notable thinkers in that space. His latest book came out in January 2021. It's called Faith After Doubt, and he's already working on a follow-up called Do I Stay Christian? Remember, you can follow No Prize From God on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And check out the other podcasts in the Pop Curse Network, including Speak and Destroy, which features interviews about Metallica, and Pop Curse, musicians talking movies. So here it is, my conversation with Brian D. McLaren. This is No Prize from God. Tell me yeah. a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I, my background is in primarily uh, entertainment journalism. Uh, I was a reporter for MTV News once upon a time, uh, covering primarily movies, actually, and some music. A little bit of politics and hard news. Uh, I've worked for MSNBC and The Hollywood Reporter and a few other outlets. But really, the genesis of this podcast was, you know, in... Uh, you know, they say, write the book you'd like to read or start the band you'd like yes. to listen to, right? Uh, and, yeah. go, and going through the religion and spirituality category in Apple Podcasts, one is confronted primarily with uh, right-wing evangelicals, <laughs> um, militant atheists, and new agey self-help stuff. And yeah. without denigrating any of those three things specifically, I would scroll through there and think, well, where are the conversations for everyone else? Yes, yes, uh, yes. And, and that was really where this was born. And in particular, from my experience as a journalist, over the years, I've found myself having incredible conversations about life's big questions. Yes. And various faith traditions people have grown up with or been part of or 
reconciled with or deconstructed or whatever it may be through the lens of art. Um, yes. So musicians first and then filmmakers. And of course that's, you know, uh, extending to authors and speakers, but really anyone who has any kind of uh, point of view on this stuff that's outside of the more dominant voices. Yes. Yes. So that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, good for you for doing this. You're making the kind of podcast I want to listen to as well. So I'm, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, it's been, and it's been, uh, it's interesting because as a believer myself and coming from, you know, a little bit of the Christian background, I had friends initially when I launched the podcast who were like, oh, you're, your Christian podcast. I don't think that's going to be for me. And, and it's by no means <laughs> that. Um, yes, yeah. There have been, you know, several Christians on the show. There have also been members of the uh, Norwegian black metal scene who did time for burning down churches. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've had uh, spirit mediums, tarot card readers, uh, you know, all sorts of um, various spectrums of belief. Great. Yeah. And, and, the, and the idea is conversation, right? Like how, do, yes. you know, where do these ideas come from and uh, how do they inform what you do and who you are? And always from a place of uh, non-judgment and learning and understanding. Cause I found that, you know, just to give you a little bit about where I'm at these days and what is reflected often in this podcast, I found that after a lifetime of searching for certainty and really desperately needing to have all of the definitive answers to every possible question that embracing the mystery and the unknowing and the mysticism that's inherent in that is a thousand times more fulfilling and is way more uh, true to who I am and has just made this chapter of my life so much more exciting. <laughs> That's the, idea fantastic. Of, the idea of being open to new information and changing one's oh, opinion. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, we will have a, gr we'll have a great conversation. That sounds fantastic. Excellent. So I first became aware of your work through probably a mutual friend or at least a mutual acquaintance, uh, Jay Baker. Oh, that's great. Yeah. He was someone who uh, talked about your stuff and that was, that was what led me to, and Jay was someone who I met through the music world right around the time that he was uh, ascending as, uh, you know, the punk rock pastor and speaking at these Christian <laughs> yes. music gigs and, you know, uh, oh, he's got tattoos, but as long as it's the same old ortho orthodoxy and it looks a little cooler, we're for it. And, <laughs> and he and I connected just as he came out as, you know, in Christianese, what they call gay affirming yes. and all of his funding disappeared yeah. and 18 staff members were gone and speaking gigs were canceled left and right. That was, that was the moment where he and I actually became close and I started uh, helping him with uh, to some extent to picking up some of the pieces of that because, you know, he did that at a time when it certainly wasn't fashionable. It was, it was prior even to Barack Obama evolving yeah. <laughs> on marriage equality. And there were a number of prominent, progressive megachurch pastors who have since come out as gay affirming who weren't willing to do so at the time who, who jay That's would right. even meet with privately and they would say well i'm with you but i can't but you know yes uh and uh a little bit a little frustrating i think for him 
yeah. intervening years to see some of these folks uh, evolve uh, yeah. in ways that still allowed for uh, <laughs> careers. <laughs> Yes. So anyway, yes. so that so that's but that was my entry point into your work and and getting into uh you know you could probably name the same authors that I would name uh that that fall into there but being really affected by where you were coming from. So for those who are listening who have no idea who you are <laughs> uh, tell us about yourself, Brian. <laughs> and the, the work that you do and sure where it started. Sure. Well, Give me the origin uh, story. Yeah. Well, first, uh, starting with a connection to Jay is a great place to start. Uh, somebody I, I love dearly. But I, I grew up in a, a very conservative, fundamentalist uh, background called Plymouth Brethren. Um, most people have never heard of it, but we considered Southern Baptists to be way too liberal. <laughs> and uh, 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 But if you've ever heard of Garrison Keillor or Jim Wallace, they both come from that same background. Um, and um, when I was a kid growing up, I loved science, I loved nature, I loved the outdoors, and I loved rock and roll. And uh, those were all things that back then didn't go with fundamentalism. Since then, fundamentalists love rock and roll, but not so much science and uh Yeah. Uh, fun, fundamentalists thinking. also now love talking about hot chicks, but it just has to be your wife. Yes. <laughs> My wife is so hot. She's the hottest. <laughs> they, like to, they like to put all the patriarchal misogyny into just one person. <laughs> De only dehumanize the mother of my children. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, uh, continue. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I thought that I was probably on my way out of uh, Christian religion. I ended up, it, it, the Jesus movement hit when I was just coming of age. And that ended up being kind of an entree for me uh, back into faith. I had some kind of powerful spiritual experiences. And, um, and, so, but, but my kind of re-entry, or maybe you might say my adolescent uh, uh, faith commitment was really in the context of love and grace and accepting people and all, all the rest. And um, I ended up, uh, I, my plan was to be a college English teacher. And while I was teaching, um, my wife and I started a little dinner group that became a little church. And I ended up leaving teaching to work with that church full time. And um, I was a pastor for 24 years, and and during that time, uh, I I uh, you know had the freedom to rethink an awful lot of things. Not too many people, when they're pastors, have that freedom, but I was fortunate in that way. And I started writing about it. And you know, I, I remember when my first book came out, I said to my wife, "When this book comes out, I will not have any friends left." Um, <laughs> And, and I did lose a few, but a lot of other people said, hey, I thought I was the only person thinking about these things. I thought I was the only crazy person. There were at least two of us. And uh, yeah, so since for the last 20 years, I've been uh, writing books and uh, I left the pastorate 14 years ago. So let's talk about how that's evolved since. Um, you know, would, would, it be, would it be safe to say that at one point, I mean, you were identified with what they call the emergent church movement, which again, yeah. for, I apologize to most of our listeners who are not fluent in Christianese. Uh, but that was, you know, a attempt within the Protestant wing of American evangelicism, one might say, to uh, bring new ideas forward and, 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 in, and in a lot of cases, resurrect old ideas that had been yeah. twisted and uh, watered down. 
Yeah, it would be like uh, it would be like if if a group of white evangelicals today said, "Hey, you know what? We want to be part of Black Lives Matter, and we believe in science, and you know, we believe in climate change, and we better do something about the environment." So it, it was it was kind of similar to that. It was a group of people saying kind of common sense things, to tell you the truth, but they were things that normally weren't said out loud. Yeah. Uh, um, but the interesting thing for us in this, uh, Ryan, is that we, uh, th- as soon as we got rolling, we realized, you know what, Catholics have been having this conversation. There was this guy named Ewart Cousins back in the 1960s who was using almost the same language we had stumbled into independently. There was an amazing Catholic missiologist named Vincent Donovan who'd written a book called Christianity Rediscovered. I don't know when it came out, early 1970s. And, you know, it took me like three books to catch up to where (laughs) he was in the 1970s. So we found out Catholics had been having this conversation. And um, when evangelicals said that they really weren't interested in us asking these questions, we found out there were lots of mainline Protestants having similar conversations. Mm. And one of the kind of fun things in my life, especially the last 10 years or so, since I've been involved a lot more in multi-faith conversations is to find out, oh, there's, there's a Jewish emergent conversation and there's a Muslim right. emergent conversation. And yeah. it's, it's kind of fascinating to, to reformations, see. so to speak. Yeah. You know, something that I've run into in conversation with more conservative leaning Christians is there's this idea there was this narrative around the emergent church movement and, and I see, and it's persisted in, in some circles with anything that's followed suit that this is an attempt to bend this immutable eternal truth to a modern culture that is, yes. you know, decadent and overly permissive and so on and so forth. And one of the, the things that was most remarkable about your work for me early on upon first really discovering, I mean, I guess 15 years ago is that, and, and others like you is the idea that no, (laughs) that interpretation of this belief system is what's modern and what is, uh, you know, polluted and changed and distorted from where it began and, and what its intentions are. So this idea that, you know, Oh, you're, uh, you're listening to culture. You're letting, you know, the decadent <laughs> yeah. modern era uh, change you. You're trying to appeal to, you know, you're moving, you're moving the goalposts of what we believe. And I just think, you know, if you, if you dig into just a little bit of Christian history and American history, you see that, you know, Purit- you know, the Puritans and going down the list of, I mean, one of the most remarkable things to me, a uh, filmmaker by the name of Daniel Karslick, who I had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, He's making a movie, I believe it's called 1945 or 1943, but it's named for the year that the word homosexual first appeared in the, yes. in the English editions of the Bible. Yes. You know, and it's like, okay, so if the idea is that there's been this, there's been this rule and that rule and they go back thousands of years. Yes. Uh, then why doesn't it appear until yes. <laughs> World War II? Uh, yes. So anyway, I realize that that's kind of a long train to go on, but the, but the fundamental idea, the overview, without getting into the weeds of the yeah. different rules and regulations, the idea that that the Christian faith is this fixed, immutable list of yes. things, yes, and that anyone attempting to do anything, quote unquote, progressive, 
is just trying to people please and water down and, and accommodate yes. culture. And I think that your work has been a big part of really turning that notion on its head and, yeah. and showing that no, doing this deconstructing is actually stripping away layers of people pleasing culture stuff yeah. that's been foisted upon it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I often wish I could go back uh, 20 years when, uh, you know, my friends and I were being criticized for uh, moral relativism and all the rest. And I just wish I could show them 81 or 78% of evangelicals supporting a guy like Donald Trump <laughs> and uh, people like me saying, this is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. So it just tells you the world is is different. But you know, when you're a kid and you grow up in a family that tells you certain things, until you get older and get a little more experience and get a chance to read some books that are not approved by your religion and so on, you have mm. no way of knowing that you're being told something that is either ignorant or naive or downright propaganda and you know, deceitful conspiracy theory type of stuff. So yeah, like uh, how many white evangelicals today would ever have any idea that until the late 1970s, evangelicals were by and large pro-choice, right? Mm. Uh, they mm. would just be shocked to hear that, but that's true. Yeah, that's a conversation that I often run into with libertarians because sometimes, uh, you know, libertarians are really, you know, diet Republicans in disguise. And it's always interesting to me when there's a militant, militantly pro-life libertarian because I go, but this whole idea of libertarianism is individual rights and respect for property and the idea that your first piece of property is your person. Yes, yes. And now, but you're saying in this in one instance, you would actually like the government to restrict what a person can do with their body. And, and how conveniently it's only women, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Strange. Yes. Uh, and, and as you said, you know, to see the moral relativism that's necessary, the gymnastics, the mental gymnastics an evangelical must do to support Donald Trump, they would put it, a lot of them would put it on abortion. And well, yeah. we need the Supreme Court justices and uh, everything else is worth it. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's quite a remarkable turn from a group of people that used to say A, B, and C is not worth it because of, you yeah. know, D, E, and F. Um, well, that's why all I can say is I am so grateful that if I was going to be brought up evangelical, I was brought up evangelical in the 1950s and 1960s, as opposed to, you know, this decade, because, um, you know, the, my upbringing told me you tell the truth, you don't lie. If you make a promise or a vow, you keep it. You, um, you, you know, you, you manifest just basic decency and integrity. Yeah. Uh, you respect people. You don't call people names. I mean, some just basic decency. That was really deeply ingrained into me. Um, and I also grew up in a, a, a strain of, you know, religion that, deeply believed in racial equality and thought mm. that segregation and so on was, was a sin. Uh, although interestingly, I asked my dad about that because his dad was, you know, an old fashioned white supremacist. And I asked my dad how he changed. And I, I expected him to tell me something about church or theology, but he said it was the army, you know, he was in the army mm. in the Korean war. And he, and he said, you know, when I was in the army and I worked side by side with people of all different races and, and religions, I just realized, 
you know, reality taught me that we were, uh, that these prejudices were uh, just yeah, it, it's it's a version of the uh, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? <laughs> Probably very few racists as well. When you're that's depending right. on the on the person next to you to that's stay right. alive, yeah, that's right. Um, well, and, and it's it's difficult uh, right now, especially as we're taping this in November 2020, not to connect all the dots between uh, American politics and American evangelicalism and how it's. Uh, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole uh, ball of yarn. But what yeah. I would be much more interested in talking about with you is, you know, you have a book coming out early next year called Faith After Doubt and a book coming out the year after that called Do I Stay Christian, which is, uh, you know, for someone who's a film fan, feels like a, a, a franchise or a, <laughs> you know, a, a, a start of a trilogy, maybe. I mean, you can tell in the yeah. titles alone that these are interlinked yeah. and clearly they speak uh, to who you are and exactly where you are right now. And I think that, I mean, I know for a fact, actually, that a lot of people who listen to this podcast maybe grew up uh, in the Christian tradition or another of the world's major faiths and have come to some sort of place where, They've deconstructed a lot of it. They've rejected a lot of it, but they don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so yeah. I think it's, you know, your work now, especially is speaking to a lot of folks like that, myself included, um, who, who are wondering these same things, you know, yeah. what does yeah. faith look like after doubt? And, uh, and do I stay Christian? <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, I went to go see, Probably, arguably my favorite theologian, who I'm sure is another person that you know, uh, Pete Rollins. Yes. I went to go see Pete uh, open, it was like a rock concert, uh, open for Rob Bell a couple of years ago. And both of them did these amazing talks. And it was when Rob Bell was working out his whole thing about the history of the Bible and how it was assembled and whatever. And there was a Q&A portion afterwards. And it's in a little uh, theater here in LA uh, called Largo, holds I think about 250 people maybe. And there's this Q&A and people are asking these amazing questions and so on and so forth. And then it was like inevitably towards the end of the Q&A is the person that gets up and says, yeah, I just want to know though, are, are, both of you, are you guys still Christians? <laughs> Do you call yourself a Christian? Yes or no? Do you believe that? And you could, you know, you could feel the discomfort yes. in the room. Yes. And neither of them answered. Yes. And you know, there was a, period in my life where I would have been in that audience and I would have been so frustrated by that lack of an answer. And I would have thought yes. it's so wishy-washy and, you know, and, and I found myself in that moment so frustrated that someone asked that question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, and not to say, you know, a, a friend of mine recently corrected me. I don't like this idea of a linear path, right? I don't want to say, well, this person's yeah. further back on the path and this person's further along. Cause that's um, lame. And I, I don't think, an accurate descriptor of the, of the context. But with that being said, there is this sort of moment where you just start to figure out that those are the wrong questions and that a lot yeah. of the answers are in the questions. So the fact that you have a book, not to skip, uh, not to leapfrog over the book that's coming out in a couple months, but the fact that you have a book that literally just asks the question, yeah. do I call myself this? I think this fascinating so well that's that's encouraging here 
Well, yeah. So, um, you know, the, I, I like the way you just said that. It's like one, the question that one person has is the most important question to them. And another mm. person is like, I, that, that question makes my skin crawl. I, I don't care what the answer is. I can't even stand the question, right? Yes. Um, and uh, that actually is what this book, Faith After Doubt, uh, is about, especially the middle section of it. Um, uh, like Rob Bell, and I'm sure P, uh, Pete Rollins too, I've been super interested in different theories and schemas of human development and intellectual development, spiritual development, development and consciousness, whatever terminology people want to use. And, um, and so what I did in this book is I took, I don't know, maybe a dozen, 12, 15 uh, major theorists on human development. And I tried to sort of synthesize, you know, their, their way of doing it. Actually, Rob Bell has a way of doing this. He talks about three stages. Uh, my friend Richard Rohr talks about two stages. Um, I, I, I basically take the same set of theories and I talk about four stages. Um, and, uh, and, and the example you just gave uh, fits this perfectly because the first stage is, I call simplicity. And that's the stage of everything's in twos us or them, good guys, bad guys. And, and I'm sure the person who asked that question was probably in that stage. They needed to know uh, whether Rob was still a good guy or whether Pete was still a good guy. And almost as though you, I, I got the sense and not to, uh, you know, project too much onto this person, but I got the sense that the right answer would have meant an openness to everything that had just come before over the last two hours. And the wrong yes. answer would have been, Exactly yeah, right. I need to know that you're still one of us, right? Yeah. And, and I really like you and I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt as yes. long as you're still one of us. Yes. Um, and that's and what then, frustrated me about the question. You just, you just hit it right there. Yes. And then people move into a second stage that I call complexity. And in this stage, it's, more, it's less about dualism and more about pragmatism. Like, how do I make like, life work? And in fact, when, uh, you know, uh, when you think about Lots of podcasts that are out there are, are really focused on pragmatism. You know, how do I succeed in life? How do mm -hmm. I have more happiness? You know, nothing wrong with that. that yeah. That's the work of stage two. Stage three is the deconstructive stage. I call it perplexity. That's the stage where we start just saying, look, I want to know the truth no matter how painful it is. And I want to face my biases and I want to be realistic about other people's biases. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sick and tired with, uh, of all the games. I want to try to penetrate, right? So um, that's perplexity. And then I think there's a, a fourth stage that you try to integrate those three stages in something larger. I call it harmony, but it, it's the place where you, you say, okay, so that guy in stage one, that was the question he had to ask because that's where he was. Mm. And, uh, and, the, and the people who were in stages two, three, or four, like they didn't like that question because it's just not where they are. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and what that has helped me do is it's helped me understand that if your only option that you're given either by your parents or your church or whatever is a kind of stage one simplistic faith, and you outgrow the stage one part of it, it doesn't mean you're outgrowing faith. It just means you're outgrowing that kind of faith. Mm. Other, otherwise, what you end up with is a kind of stage one religion or a kind of stage one atheism. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And the problem with anybody at stage one is they're always ready for a fight. 
always. And, 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 in, and with the kind of zeal where, and this is something that I try to keep in mind, and, and this, might, this may be a reflection of my own, what sounds like stage threeness, hopefully bordering into stage four, uh, is that I try to keep in mind that, that the stage one folks itching for a fight, uh, even, that they're oftentimes fundamentally coming from a, from a good place in that yes. they, they feel the, the zealotry to evangelize uh, so aggressively because they see these as mortal issues, right? So yes. your, your hardcore fundamentalist Christian thinks, if I, don't, if I don't convince this person, they're being barbecued by our loving creator for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the hardcore atheist says, if I don't convince this person out of this crazy fairy tale, sky wizard yeah. ideas, you know, it's the downfall of human civilization. It's, it's yeah. destroying everything. So I think that those attitudes are essentially good, but it presupposes in both cases that they have an exclusive <laughs> exclusivity on truth. Yes, and, that's right. And, and, and the other thing, uh, the other thing about it, I agree with you exactly. And, um, and the other problem, though, is that when a, when a person in simplicity argues with another person in simplicity, um, th there, there are only a couple of possible outcomes. Either one person defeats the other and the other submits, right? Yeah. That very, it very rarely happens, but it sometimes does. But what's interesting is when you submit to the person who defeats you, it's probably not a big advance in maturity and consciousness, right? It's a reinforcement that the world is about conquering and defeating. Yes. Um, more often what happens is each side simply digs their heels in more deeply to defend themselves. And so they are in this dance of fundamentalism, of two kinds of, ex uh, of fundamentalism. And I think we're living in a world right now where those kinds of people, uh, you know, they're doing the only thing they yet know how to do. But when, when people like that have a finger, they can put their finger on a nuclear button, um, it's a pretty scary uh, thing to, 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 to project uh, into the future. Um, and that's why f folks who are stuck like that, I think their third option is they meet somebody who doesn't play the game. Mm. And it's frustrating to them. Mm. Why can't I get them to give me a straight answer? But at the same time, in the back of their mind, the fact that you know, Rob and Pete didn't give a straight answer. Face that person. They wanted to judge them, I'm sure. But something inside them said, they're, they're not playing by the rules I'm playing by. Yeah. Which eventually makes them say, maybe there's another set of rules I could play by. And I think that's how we grow. Wow. And, and you know, it, gosh, you're, you're pulling up, you're, you're doing such an amazing job of articulating these like subconscious thoughts I'm having because that I was just thinking about right as you arrive there about a good friend of mine who is a dyed in the wool dedicated Sam Harris listener, like every Sam Harris podcast, every interview, every book, and really made it his mission one evening when we were hanging out together uh, to uh, deprogram me from any kind yes. of faith. And it was exactly as you described in that he was repeatedly frustrated by what he saw as my, vague wishy-washy because he was going through his usual uh deconstruction of yeah. okay, do you really believe that 
you know, people are yes. going to be damned to an eternity of hell. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, wait, well then, you know, and, and then it got to the point where he's like, well, you're not this thing that you say that you are. And I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's, uh, it's endlessly frustrating. And, and you just, you just explained why, which I didn't realize until I heard you explain it. It's that stage one encountering somebody in stage three or four and yeah. they can't have the stage one argument that they're used to. Cause he re- he really wanted to have an argument with like a by the book, no pun intended Christian. Yes. And he was endlessly frustrated that, uh, you know, I mean, how, yeah. you know, how can you be opposed to gay marriage? I'm not, <laughs> you know, and on and on it went. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And, and, uh, and you know, this is our, this is, the, this is what it's like to be human beings living with other human beings who were brought up to be, and they were told, this is what Christians are like. And even though that night was frustrating, uh, your conversation partner now has to think, wow, it's, it's not as simple as I thought, or there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, or, or people change. <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 or even just, I like to think that it's, and this, you know, brings us back around to the, do I stay Christian? Yes. I, I like to think that it at least has that effect of like, well, okay, well now that now they've met one. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, one that wasn't this, this, and this, and was maybe yeah. this or that. You uh, know, it, it, if I could just give an interesting example, sometimes um, for me as a, a Christian, it helps me to see this as if I were a Jew or as if I were a Muslim or an atheist, whatever. But um, uh, I, I was in conversation with some Jewish friends a couple of years ago, and they were telling me that among many of their young Jewish uh, friends, what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, what Netanyahu and sort of these right-wing Israelis are doing mm. to the Palestinians is so morally abhorrent to them that they are finding it hard to call themselves Jews, right? And, um, and this is what's behind so many people who have been Christian, and then they just think, I do not want to be associated with this mm. thing anymore. And uh, one of the things I'm grappling with, uh, the, the way I'm structuring this uh, book that will come out in 2022, Do I Stay Christian? The first third of the book is, the, is called No. <laughs> and, and I, and I <laughs> yeah. give the 10 best reasons I can think of to not be a Christian. Um, and then the second third of the book is called Yes. And then I'm offering 10 reasons uh, uh, that I think make sense to stay a Christian. And then the third part of the book is called how, because it's structured around whether you stay Christian or not, how are you going to live? And, mm. and, um, uh, and one of the things that I'm grappling with as I write this book is, well, guess what? If you don't stay Jewish, um, you're still a human being and human beings do really horrible things that would make you think I want no part of humanity. Mm. Uh, And, and then it, that raises this deeper issue for me. And that is what is it about me that wants to disassociate from what I consider, you know, bad people, or I consider, Mm. you know, foolish people or whatever it is. What is it about me that makes me need to disassociate what would happen if instead of running away from them, I were to say I'm in solidarity with them because I'm a human being and they're human beings, their problems are my problems. So that's a lot harder. That's a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and to me, this is what, what we're kind of stuck with. Mm. Um, 
we're, we are human beings. And it turns out that our worst problems aren't just Christian problems or Jewish problems or Muslim problems or atheist problems. They're human problems. And once we start facing these problems of our common humanity and say, what are we going to do about it? Because uh, we're on a kind of suicidal trajectory right now. That's when life, I think, will get interesting. And maybe that will be the question that helps us break through to uh, the, the, uh, a, a more mature level, let's say it that way. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, on a similar notion, you know, I, as a teenager, was involved in the straight edge hardcore scene, its own subculture. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I just turned 47 a couple of weeks ago. I still identify as a straight edge person. I have a straight edge tattoo. And this is in spite of, uh, you know, different sensationalized news stories and acts of violence and, yeah. you know, silly things, terrible things that have been done in the name of it or, or different kind of organized groups or quote unquote gangs yes. or even uh, an, a, a type of religious orthodoxy that exists within the straight edge movement where there's, yeah. there have been rules that have been there's no prophet, there's no religious texts, and yet there are these rules yes. that some yeah. uh, abide by re with religious zeal. And, and in a similar, it's obviously a much less important thing, but I, I cling to it in the same way where it's like, yeah, and this is maybe the punk rock part of me or the contrarian in me is I just think, I don't want to let those people have it. Yeah, yeah. If I, if I leave, then they get to just have it. And yeah. I, I like being here and irritating them by <laughs> insisting that, uh, that I belong. Hey, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let me ask you something about that. Um, mm. uh, I, I'm going to guess that, you know, at that very important coming of age period, when, when you affiliated with that group, it meant something to your own identity and development as a human being. It, it freed you in some way. It showed you some deep, deep treasure. It gave you entree into deep experiences of connection with other people and yourself and life. And to throw that away would be almost to deny the, the power that it had in your life. Is that, is that a, a safe no, 100%, way to say it? 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, and as much as it's, tempting to throw it away it, it because other people are irritating about it yeah. that's it's it's lending too much power to people outside yeah. of myself for exactly what you said that's that's certainly the grander uh more optimistic view of why it's worth hanging on to and, and also it's, it's a type of shorthand which conversationally may be a disservice from time to time like calling yourself a christian and yet I think still fits the bill, you know, yeah. someone, you know, a Christian is a Christ follower. And yeah. I like to think of someone who, uh, even if it's proven that there was no such historical figure as Jesus Christ, yeah. the idea and the mysticism that comes with that idea and the impact that it's had around the world is something I still aspire to follow. So it's yeah. like, you can, <laughs> you could take away as, <laughs> As, as much as you want and that fundamental part is, is still there for me so but yeah exactly as as you described um so eloquently uh that's that's why i you know those labels i still identify there and it gets tricky because i know uh, folks of all kinds of beliefs listen to 
this podcast or a podcast like it and are again you know bringing us back around endlessly frustrated by what they hear as wishy-washy um uh, and yeah it's it's difficult to articulate and and I'm really excited to read this new book because it sounds like the this, the group four, <laughs> yeah, to articulate how how one can synthesize the all all three of those first three stages, much like yeah. you described with myself and my experience with Straight Edge, it doesn't sound like you're advocating that you abandon one, two, and three, right. but but four is actually finding harmony with one, two, and three. So there's still bits of one and two. The yeah, mix, the, is that right? the, the, the metaphor I use in the book is I say, instead of thinking of a line, just like you were saying before, it's not like a stage that you grow out of and leave it behind. Think of it as a tree. And you know how a tree, you have mm. a center ring and then more rings form and every new ring encompasses the old rings. And, um, and so if, if we think of it that way, you know, it's whether we're allowed to add a new ring that's bigger and includes yeah. the others. It, nothing is left, nothing is lost, including the things that we think are mistakes, because once you identify it as a mistake or something that now you, you, you know, are ashamed of even, you say, yeah, but the reason I'm ashamed of it is because I experienced what it was like. I experienced where it left, where it led. <laughs> and, and that's now part of me and helps make me who I am. So that mm-hmm. sense of expansion rather than, you know, a, a, the term that a whole lot of us use, uh, drawing from Ken Wilber, is that you include something as you transcend it. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, I've never heard that. And that's, wow. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, if anything, if, if no one listens to this and this is just a private one-on-one conversation, <laughs> I'm benefiting from it immensely because that, yeah, that's wow. Uh, so you, you absorb it rather than as you transcend it. Yeah, and you aren't limited by it. The transcending part is to say, I'm not, I'm not bounded by that anymore. Um, I'm, I'm expanding into something more, but that's still part of me. And that's part, and I wouldn't be here uh, you know, if it weren't, if it weren't for that. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I suppose it's like a, a skill or a trade in that sense too. Like, you know, someone who's a, a tattoo artist who might've started out doodling and sketching in a, yeah. in a notebook, you know, they're not leaving behind the person who sketched in the notebook. It's, that's still in there. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because to use an analogy to a skill or an art I think makes a lot of sense because one of the things that happens to a lot of us in stage one religion is we identify religion with a set of beliefs. Mm. And, and I wonder what would happen if we could just give ourselves permission for 10 minutes to forget that, have a little amnesia about that. And instead of think of, instead think of religion as a set of skills. Um, Mm. And, and then you think, okay, uh, you know, at stage one, I master a bunch of skills. Um, it's basic. One of the basic ones is same and different. Same is safe. Different is dangerous. You know? <laughs> um, but but then you move into another set of skills. Uh, and part of what I call complexity is realizing, oh, I, I grew up Christian, so I have a Christian set of rules, and I'm playing a sort of Christian game. My Jewish friends, they're playing a Jewish game. It's a different set of rules. That certain things are different. And the fact that I start to acknowledge there's more than one game going mm-hmm. here. And, oh, they're learning a different set of skills over there. Um, and, that, you know, that for me, uh, because it's a huge part of what goes on in religion. And it's one of the really great things that happens in religion. 
Um, and, and not to make too strong a connection, but even your example from, from uh, straight edge uh, music, my guess is that, that one of that every different kind of music has the ability to open us up to certain dimensions of human emotion and experience and perception mm-hmm. and uh, just modes of being. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so when, you know, if you're listening to cool jazz, you know how to enter a certain space, mm-hmm. very different space in straight edge punk. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and very different stage in thrash metal um, or classical or whatever. And, and if you think, it's not that one form of music is right or the other is wrong, but that anything that helps us gain entry into a different set of skills, a different way of perceiving and processing, yeah. life, that has great value. I mean, it's, it, wow. It, it speaks to what, you know, for me as a uh, Irish Catholic kid who grew up in Indiana, hearing straight out of Compton for the first time gave me a window into what a teenager in Compton, <laughs> California, yes. what their life was like a window that I wouldn't have otherwise had and communicated in a way that's much more visceral and much more yes. spiritual than, you know, a news report or, or an article. Yes. And, yes. That, and, and that's, you know, with stuff that's more sort of overtly socio political, but, but yeah. going on down the line, I mean, yeah, there's so yeah. much, so much experience that I've accumulated sort of vicariously via art. (laughs) Right. I mean, and that's why we love a lot of storytelling, you know, what's a movie it's putting yourself in the shoes of your protagonist and, you know, living, (laughs) living a day in their life and wondering how you might handle a situation differently than, you know, don't, don't look under that bed or don't, you know, whatever it is, as you're going through the story. And I think we, we must get something from that since we enjoyed doing it so much. I think there's something there. Well, and that brings just another sort of resonance because you think of what religion does and music does. And then you think what filmmaking and other forms of storytelling, writing novels, short stories, and so on. Yeah. They, in a sense, uh, there, there's a whole set of movies, I think that help confirm in us. They, they like take what we already think and just massage it and make mm. it feel good. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's bad, but mm. it's an awful lot of, you know, it's sort of the sitcom, you know, that yeah. just sort of always massages what we already think. But then there are other movies and other forms of art and they take you someplace where you just, I've never seen the world from that perspective before. Mm. Oh my gosh. Uh, the term I, I use for it is it, it humanizes the other. Oh, another, like, I don't mm. know if you ever read, there's a novel called My Name is Asher Lev that uh, uh, by uh, Chaim Potok, that was uh, about a young boy who grows up in a hyper-Orthodox Jewish family. And he has a super, uh, he's like a prodigy in art. Well, imagine what happens when you grow up in a hyper-Orthodox Jewish family and you start taking art classes and you have to sketch your first nude. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so, yeah. and, and I remember when I read that book, I just thought, not only did I gain insight into this Jewish community in New York City that I would never gain access into. Right. But I also gained it insight into the 14-year-old me that was trying to figure out how do I be a fundamentalist Christian and also a sexual being, right? So yeah. <laughs> You have to marry your high school girlfriend and talk about how hot she is. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way and then if and then if you want to know uh about self-pleasure on a business trip you need to read uh, a certain pastor's book <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that that's where uh 
you know, a lot of the evangelicals, and and we're talking. I'm bringing it up so much because it's a, it's something I think we both understand and have yeah. encountered a lot. And it, it honestly doesn't come up that much on the podcast. Um, but I, one of the things that's striking to me about that is how unlike say the Catholic church or the Episcopalian church, or, you know, a lot, a lot of mainline Protestant traditions, uh, Presbyterian, which my mom was a Presbyterian, this whole sort of, the, for the advantages that come along with the non-denominational style churches, there's a lot of disadvantages in the mm-hmm. sense that they are, as much as they accuse emergent thinkers of moral relativism, I see all those mega churches as, as a form of moral relativism, themselves because they aren't tethered to any kind of tradition or any kind of accountability outside of their own walls. And that's how I think you end up with some of these mega churches that become cults of personality. And then the whole house of cards collapses as soon as that person at the top is revealed to be human. (laughs) (laughs) And that's sure been happening a lot lately. That's yes. And, and you know, that, that really is true. As you say that, it makes me think, that especially these days when so many people despise institutions, but you realize, you know, there's a kind of corporate intelligence that can be held by an institution. Um, Now, very often, all that's maintained is the rules and people forget the corporate intelligence. And that's when the institution is becoming lazy and is sowing the seeds of its own destruction. But at its best, you know, good institutions preserve that kind of intelligence. And, And even cultures, they have... They have rituals for helping people. You know, you think of coming mm. of age, you know, rituals in and, and, and various cultures that were ways of saying, okay, look, we've learned that, you know, you go, you enter puberty and you've got to become realistic about your sexuality. What does that mean? Well, you better learn about how sex is related to power and you better learn how sex is related to to um, violence and harm. And you better learn how sex is related to maturity and, and reproduction and you know, so they say over, you know, no individual creates this, but the sort of shared corporate intelligence says, oh, we need a ritual to mark this passage. Mm. And, mm. and um, this is one of the things that I think uh, our, uh, our loss of institutions and our loss of faith communities has left an awful lot of us just cast adrift and mm. something we're going to need. Uh, a whole lot of people are working on how we recreate those those, well, their habits, their skills again, their social habits and, and, and shared intelligence. Yeah, cultural intelligence. I'm reminded of something you said earlier, you know, in regards to the, uh, you know, getting back to that idea of, of are, you, are you one of us or are you one of them? Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I traveled for the first time in the pandemic uh, on a trip to Nashville and I had a a layover in Chicago that resulted in, you know, a delayed flight resulted in a missed flight and without, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more uh, pedestrian or <laughs> boring than someone's bad travel story. But the, but the reason I give you that context is that I found myself in a situation with about a half a dozen girls who were all traveling together, women, uh, probably aging from early twenties to early thirties. Uh, and myself and one other woman from California, we were all in the same predicament and we were all uh, advocating for the same solutions with the airline. Right. And so it was kind of, you know, we're all kind of banded together in our, in our strife. And I'll tell you at a certain point, 
in the conversation, you know, I asked what they were doing in, in California and, and one of them said, you know, oh, we're going to this women's retreat. It's kind of a workshop and it deals with, um, with this and that and improvement and this and faith and this. And then I just kind of cut in and said, are you with a church? Yes. We're all pastors. We're, you know, small church in Minnesota and da, 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 and, you know, and, and they're all blonde haired and blue eyed and, and uh, I mean, they were super cool. They couldn't have been cooler. It was wonderful to be stranded with them for half a day, but there was a sense the moment that they learned that I'm also a believer. Yeah. Just the whole dynamic, the whole mood shifted. Yeah. There, there was, a, there was an otherness and there, yeah. and, and quite understandably, you know, single yeah. male, a yeah. uh, bunch of, you know, married women. Yeah. Uh, but it was like the moment that they, and it was sort of like a deeper discussion of that even didn't really matter. It was just like, Oh, same yeah. label. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not trying to place a value judgment on them because they were all lovely and wonderful. Yes. 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 Um, intelligent, cool, smart, driven people. Uh, but there was a palpable change in the dynamic, a safety almost. You could tell that there was a, they felt much safer around yes. me all of a sudden. But it sounds like you also felt a certain amount of discomfort about that. Yes. Uh, and, 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 I, and listen, yes. that, that is something that I think a lot of people wouldn't understand. Um, I think that's part of what I call stage three uh, uh, and, and, and stage four, where when I'm invited to be, to gain the benefits of belonging, mm under a contract that excludes others. I, I have this uneasy feeling, like I don't feel this is a totally moral way to build belonging. <laughs> you are um, again, articulating what I'm, my subconscious has, has been trying to work out. I couldn't have put it that way, but you just put it perfectly. That's exactly, that was exactly the, the source of my discomfort in that situation. I almost felt like I was, um, cheating like i was gaining entry into a club where i didn't belong and where i was uncomfortable that others weren't invited yeah yeah wow <laughs> and 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 again these are these are what's to me so fascinating about that example is that this is what this is part of human this is part of our human struggle in these in these times um and it it it's just a symptom of what we're working out it's like we evolved in all of these different tribal groups. And now we realize that we're facing problems that are global in nature. And so our tribal groups are fine, they're good. But if we don't figure out how to get these tribes working together on these common problems, mm -hmm. and if one tribe is, is gaining its identity by excluding another tribe and so on, we start to think, this is part of the problem. I don't want to participate in this. And yeah. These, yeah. Yeah. So. And that, and that gets into, uh, and I suppose we should, we should wrap up. So uh, lastly, you know, you mentioned conspiracy thinking, conspiratorial thinking, you know, and I know that this isn't a, a unique point of view, but my read on that for all of my adult life and even going back into my teens when I, you know, I, I was, I think a senior in high school when Oliver Stone's JFK came out and I had my first taste of uh, there goes my spinal tap pop filter. Uh, I had my first taste of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of buying all the books and uh, yeah. you know, it's that it takes uh, oftentimes inexplicable things and, and oftentimes things that are so tragic and horrific that it's too hard to wrap our hands around our heads around. And it, 
and it gives you um, a context with which to understand it. And mm. it's something like QAnon, where even when that context is horrific, it's it's still comforting because it's giving you the answers. Like, okay, yes. I understand what's happening and why it's happening and who's doing it. And I have this, you know, decoder ring with which I can view yeah. anything that pops up into my, you know, into my bandwidth and, and have the interpretation. I immediately know yeah. and I'm comforted by that. And it's, to me, that's, you know, it's nine 11 truthers. It's, you know, go on down the line. I mean, nine 11 is something that was so unimaginable and horrific. And it seems like people really came to grips with it in some cases by, solving it yes. you know it was a puzzle to solve and they came up whether it's we got to ban muslims from coming into the country or george bush did this or this yes. you know whatever it is once you knew then it was like oh, okay i can process this because now i know and it's it's a lot harder to live in the unknowing you know sometimes well that's kind of full circle as you were saying yeah. earlier there's this sort of addiction to certainty that we have and we lose one kind of certainty we want another kind you go through that several times and you think yeah you know what certainty isn't all it's cracked up to be <laughs> and and this sense of humility and openness to mystery and this sense of curiosity right you think ah oh, that this might be a better way to live and um mm -hmm. and i think that's that's that combination of humility and curiosity and living with uh with uh, uncertainty in, in the face of things that are too big to ever cram into my little head. You know, that I think is what we mean by faith. When we get beyond just the idea of checking off a list of beliefs, it's this orientation to the world of curiosity and humility and openness and wonder. And that's sure something that I, I don't want to lose. I think it's one of the best things. What a perfect uh location to land this plane um i would love it if you would come back uh i feel like there's that was a f incredible discussion and i feel like there's a hundred more to have um let's do so, it yes thank you so much for accepting the invitation it's a big pleasure i've been really looking forward to this one so uh yeah and in terms of living in that mystery you know my, my small little work of doing this podcast everybody's got a podcast right but uh, this is this is part of how I'm living in that these conversations are infinitely more invigorating for me than, you know, a lifetime of, of trying to check bo different boxes. So well said, well, a pleasure being with you. Look forward uh, to the next time, my friend. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.